This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. David Granite, and welcome to Health Matters. Today, we have one of those really cool, unique talks, and I think you're going to be very excited about it. And if you like science fiction, I'm going to open with this. You have been invaded and the invaders are 10 times more than the number of cells in your body. They affect your health, they affect much about what your life does, and about who you are and what you look like. What are these? It's your microbiome. What is a microbiome? Well, we have an expert who's gonna help us with that. Dr. Rob Knight, welcome. Thanks, David. Um, Dr. Knight is professor of pediatrics Computer Science and Engineering here at University of California, San Diego. Uh, and um, as, you, as I listened to your accent, it took me a while to figure out you're from New Zealand originally. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and I have to share with you, it's my son's favorite country in the whole world. I don't know why he picked New Zealand, but he's always decided we should move and live there one day. Oh, uh, sure. Well, it's a, it's a very nice place to live. Uh, this, um, uh, you know, like here, it has that combination of beaches and, uh, and the mountains very close by. And uh, yeah, there's certainly a lot of uh, certainly, certainly a lot of great things to do there. There's there's an ad that I heard once about uh, a product coming from New Zealand because it was clean and green. Uh-huh. And, and I just wondered if if some of those thoughts led you on your way eventually when you started studying bacteria and the microbiome uh, and the things that we're about to talk about. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's certainly very interesting, and the, the question is how can you be clean and green rather than being uh, rather than waging war against your microbes and just uh, just wiping them all out? You want to uh, think about them more as a landscape that you want to nurture rather than as a battlefield where you want to eliminate everything that's not you. I think that's a great starting point, and, and I want to start with uh, asking you. I said my, microbiome. You said microbes. Uh-huh. What are we talking about? Uh, sure. So, so the, the microbes, also known as the microbiota, is a set of as many as 100 trillion cells, uh, microbial cells, uh, mostly, mostly uh, say, single-celled organisms that inhabit your body. And then the is micro- that what most people call bacteria? Um, bacteria are most of them, but there's also archaea, which are another group of organisms that are actually more closely related to us than they are to bacteria, even though they lack nuclei. And there's also, there's also eukaryotes that have nuclei, so, so yeast, uh, amoebas, if you're unlucky, giardia, that kind of thing. And we don't see so many of them in, in the Western world, but when we look at other countries like Malawi, uh, like Venezuela, for example, we see a lot more uh, diversity in the eukaryotic component of the microbiota. So then the microbiome is a set of genes that they all have. So they have genes, we have genes. Right. In our body, who's carrying more genes, the microbiome or the human? Uh, yeah, the microbiome has dramatically more genes than the, than the human does. So, uh, so we, we have about 20,000 genes each, depending on what exactly you count in terms of non-coding RNAs and things. But then we carry around with us as many as 2 to 20 million microbial genes. And the other, the other thing that's fascinating, I mean, the two of us are pretty much the same in terms of our human DNA. So we're about 99.99% identical at that level. But we might only be 10% the same in terms of the microbes we have. And, and that varies depending upon where you are on the planet, which part of the body you look at, yep. and how old you are. Uh, absolutely, and a whole lot of other factors that we're just starting to figure out in, um, in large-scale projects like the Human Microbiome Project, which was funded by NIH, and like American Gut, which is actually funded by uh, members of the public who are interested in finding out about their own microbes. Now, I, I heard your TED Talk, which is fabulous. And, Thank you. And I thought I heard you say this, that it's the largest scientific project crowdsourced? 
Uh, to our knowledge, it's the largest crowdsourced, crowdfunded science project out there. So, there, uh, so, so the, the, really, the, the really exciting thing about it is, is the ability for people to participate directly. So there are some very large crowdfunded po- uh, projects out there doing things like building space telescopes that have raised more money, but they don't provide quite the same opportunity for you to get involved. And uh, the, the, great, the, the great thing about American Gut is that not only, can you, uh, not, not only do you get access to the data of the thousands of people who have participated already, but you can also see how you fit in, not just to the American population, but to populations around the world, um, including, uh, including now Britain and Australia as part of that project. So we have spin-offs for, for British Gut, Australian Gut, and so on, um, starting with those countries because it's easier to translate English into English. But uh, we'll, we'll, move, we'll move into the rest of the world before too long. But uh, you can also see how you compare to, for example, hunter-gatherers like the Hadza uh, in East Africa uh, will be putting in there fairly soon. And um, then we have a paper coming out uh, coming out today, actually, uh, about a un- uh, previously uncan- uh, uncontacted group of Yanomami. So these are, these are people in Venezuela who, uh, when they were first contacted by Westerners, um, it was possible to get informed consent and possible to, uh, possible to collect samples of their microbiome so we can see what happens in those extremely remote populations and uh, what, what a more uh, ancestral-like microbiome might have looked like. I want to get into the details shortly, but when I introduced you, I said pediatrics, you're a professor of pediatrics, and computer science and engineering. Can you tell us the computer science and engineering component and why that was so important as a background to bring to the table to studying the microbiome of the human? Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, it's um, so the microbiome is really a big data project, right? So you have a hundred trillion cells in there. Uh, each of them has a couple of thousand genes. So there's a lot of data in your gut. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out what does that data record uh, about about who you are, about uh, about your lifestyle, and also how we can use that data to predict uh, what's going to happen in the future, and also what actions you should specifically take to to optimize for the best outcome. So um, so what we're doing so so what we're doing is we're taking huge data sets, uh, gigabytes or terabytes of information. And we're trying to take all of that and try to turn that into answers to ecological questions, like who's in there, how are they changing, what are they doing? And also to medical questions, like uh, can we predict disease risk? Can we predict how those microbes are going to metabolize particular drugs? And all of those kinds of things. So there's a tremendous amount of potential, and especially for doing this in very early life uh, settings with young children, uh, this, uh, using that data to help, sh- uh, help shape their entire lives is tremendous exciting. And when you first start looking at this and you try and do research, we rarely start by making impact on humans. You started looking at mice. And, and I, I saw what you talked about where you talked about heavy mice and thin mice. Uh-huh. And uh, we think about that as eat less, exercise more. But you showed that there was another way to impact whether or not a mouse was heavy or thin. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you can take two mice that have exactly the same genetics and are on exactly the same diets and have exactly the same propensity to to exercise. And if you change your your microbes, if you're a mouse at least, um, that can change your weight. Uh, It can also change your behavior fascinatingly. And there's less data on that in people, but at least if you're a mouse, how anxious you are, how much you want to eat, and all kinds of other uh, basic things that you might have expected to, to be affected by your DNA are actually affected by the microbial DNA that you carry around with you. And so what we're trying to figure out is uh, how much of that applies to humans. And in humans, we're already seeing great associations between, um, between the microbes that you have and, uh, and how much you weigh. Uh, there are other groups, for example... And, the, and you took the microbiome from a human 
and put it into a mouse, and the heavy human would have get a heavy mouse, and the thin human would get a thin mouse. Yeah, so that's exactly right. Which is right. astonishing. It, 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 is, it is astonishing. So, so the experimental work that was actually done by Jeff Gordon at WashU, although we're setting up facilities to do that uh, right, right here on this campus. And it's tremendously exciting because if you can transfer some aspects of, um, some, some aspects of a phenotype, so some aspects of how a particular organism is by transferring the microbes even across that species boundary, it's incredibly compelling for, sure, for proving that the microbes are doing the job rather than that they're just responding to whatever the condition is. So the, the TV show The Biggest Loser may really be working because they move these people to a new location, they live in a different place, they feed them differently, and they may be changing their microbiome rather than some of the other activities that are going on. Well, well that, could, that could well be part of it, and especially it could explain why some people lose a ton of weight, whereas other people lose very little. And uh, one of the most exciting aspects is the possibility that you might be able to predict from your microbes beforehand, uh, whether on a particular diet or on a particular exercise program, it was actually going to be effective for you. So there's actually a French group, um, the, the MetaHit project, that have shown that, that you can do exactly that. So they were able to predict how much weight someone was going to lose on the same diet uh, based on their microbes before they started. And uh, if we can generalize that and apply it in the US population where the microbes are different, uh, you know, that's certainly something a lot of people would want to know, right? Because the, <laughs> A lot of people would want to know, yes. Right, because the, the, the issue with every study on diet and exercise has been individual variability. And there's been billions of dollars spent on trying to figure out is that variability in the human DNA where we're all essentially identical but there's been far less research to figure out is it coming from the microbial DNA where we can be far more different from one another and then you also have the uh, you also have the, the the ability to change your microbial DNA whereas your human DNA is pretty uh, pretty difficult you are. to modify as exactly. you talk I keep starting to think that we are the host and, and we have been, as I said when I started, invaded. And uh -huh. these, these very smart uh, microbiomes have used us to, to provide them with food. And, you know, and, and, and they run the show, and we just happen to be carriers. Uh, and that there's somewhere a science fiction story in all of this about you know, the invasion that's going on. But it's really incredible how they run us. Sure, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, uh, even 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 people have taken different antibiotics. There's a lot of anecdotes about after I took this antibiotic, I uh, I changed what food I liked. I changed all kinds of behaviours. It'll be fascinating to track down how much of that turns out to be in the microbes. Now, you, you have another story that I heard you tell in talking about diarrhea uh, and people with uh, terrible chronic diarrhea that after years of treatment have really been unsuccessful and you changed or their microbiome was changed and almost instantly they were they were helped. Can you tell us about that? Uh, sure. So this is a technique called fecal microbiota transplant, and um, the, the technique's very simple. I mean, essentially, you're uh, you're, you're taking someone's stool and you're uh, you're, you're administering it. So, so our collaborators, uh, Mike Sadowski and Alex Kuritz at the University of Minnesota that we do this with, refer to the two possible entries as the northern route or the southern route. Uh, both of those are highly effective in, uh, and have been shown to be so in a number of clinical trials, so typically 90 to 95% effective. So, so no medicine, right? No, no, none of the other standard treatment has worked, and, and we're talking about now just inoculating someone with a healthy person's microbiome. Uh, that's exactly right, although under FDA rules, uh, that fecal sample does in fact count as medicine, and if you want to do it for anything other than C. diff diarrhea, you have to get an IND. Uh, you have to prove that it was manufactured to the standards of a biologic like Enbrel, and you can imagine how 
that's kind of difficult with the way we usually produce our feces. Uh, yes. It's not exactly in a high-end manufacturing facility, unless you consider our own bodies to be such a facility, which uh, I guess you could make an argument for that. But, um, yeah, so, uh, so, so it's fascinating, the idea that... Uh, so the idea that food could be a medicine has been around for a long time, uh, at, least, um, at, at, least, uh, at least since the ancient Greeks. Um, <clears throat> the, the idea that what comes out the other end could also be a medicine is uh, perhaps a little more surprising, but it's been remarkably, remarkably effective in a number of trials by different labs. How much does what we eat affect our microbiome? Um, over the long term, tremendously. So the biggest effect we've seen is, uh, is, is things like how many different kinds of plants you eat, what the overall balance is between, um, between carbohydrates and fats, especially animal fats. Uh, and so, um, and, and so a, large part, uh, a large part of the differences between different people is driven by diet. And, and can you manipulate that? In other words, are, are, are we taking people who maybe aren't as healthy and saying to them, change the balance of your diet? All these arguments about carbohydrates, proteins, etc. Really, is this an argument about the biome, the microbiome? Very plausibly. And one, one, of, one of the exciting things about studying the microbiome is we can come up with more mechanistic explanations for a lot of, uh, a lot of observations that everyone knows, right? So, uh, so, so, you know, we knew that leafy green vegetables were good for you and that fries were bad uh, a long time before anyone fries was doing Fries are bad? Um, well, from a weight loss perspective, although, uh, although fascinatingly, fries are Americans' leading source of vitamin C in the diet. And there's not a lot of vitamin C in each fry, but if you eat a lot of them, it adds up. And, and we do. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Statistically, I mean, maybe you don't, but... No, uh, I, I do. <laughs> right. Uh, and and so, so it's fascinating to think how many uh, how, how many properties of our microbiome we might be able to we might be able to fix by small tweaks to the food supply that we haven't thought of yet. And if you think about it, uh, parallel to nu- uh, nutritional deficiencies from a century ago, all of these things like goiter and rickets and beriberi uh, and, and so on are just completely uh, completely eradicated now um, with very effective. Uh, very effective supplementation programs that apply to the whole population. And, um, and so this trade-off between do you want an individualized therapy based on your personal microbiome or do you want a microbiome-based therapy that could potentially apply to everyone while being harmless to the people who don't need it, that's a very exciting possibility and one of the things we're really trying to get off the ground here. And not mutually exclusive that you can do a public health issue as well as personalized they both can be done. That's exactly right. And um, again, if you take human genetic disorders as a parallel, uh, for example, PKU is, um, is, is treatable with a special diet, essentially avoiding phenylalanine. That completely, um, that, that completely eliminates the effect, but you only have to uh, do that special diet if, if you have PKU. And so then, then, the, question, then the question really is, uh, are there a lot of deficiencies that we have now that are contributing to the explosion of autoimmune disease, but perhaps they're microbial deficiencies rather than nutritional deficiencies? There are uh, new diseases that, not new, but they're they're seemingly uh, increasing. Uh, You and I were talking before the show, autoimmune diseases, as you just mentioned, allergy, asthma, some of these other uh, uh, diseases appear to be on the rise, and there's been these hygiene hypotheses and Western world hypotheses. But there's something else that's happened, which is that for all of recorded human history, children were only born one way, and they were born vaginally. Right. And only recently in all of history have we taken children out a different way where they're not coated by vaginal bacteria. Is that impacting the health of our society? Uh, a- absolutely. I mean, um, just, just, just as a reminder, the most likely outcome if you're born vaginally, um, uh, vaginally or by C-section is that you'll be fine. Uh, we're talking about increases in, in relatively rare risks. But with C-section, there are higher risks of, of allergies, of asthma, of atopic disease, even of obesity. And all of these have been linked to the microbiome now. 
And, and what did you do with your own child? Well, um, so with with my own child, we, uh, we we had we had a fairly detailed birth plan and and so forth. But uh, as, uh, as as any, as anyone with children knows, those those plans don't necessarily work out. So we wound up having to have an unplanned C-section. Yeah, there's an old Yiddish and, phrase my grandmother taught me: "Man plans and God laughs." Right. Well, so. I think your children certainly help a lot with that. Yes. Uh, so, so, so anyway, so we, um, so we wound up having an unplanned, uh, unplanned C-section, and um, what what we did ourselves was essentially. Um, uh, was essentially just uh, restored to our uh, our newborn daughter the microbes that she would have had had she passed, uh, passed through the birth canal the natural way, uh, essentially by uh, by um, swabbing the relevant region of, of her mother, um, and then transferring those microbes. We're currently doing a larger scale clinical trial because you can't conclude uh, can't conclude that much from a sample size of one kid, um, uh, right? Uh, no matter how much you might love that particular kid, but uh, what we're what we're what we're doing now. Was a larger scale clinical trial to figure out um, with, uh, with with more people and in a more planned way um, how much of an influence you can have and how long that influence lasts when you uh, when you transfer the vaginal microbiome. But one one thing that's fascinating is Jacques Revelle's work at the University of Maryland, where uh, he's he's studying the vaginal microbiome of women, and there's tremendous diversity, uh, one woman to the next in uh, the in, in the vaginal microbiome when they're not pregnant, but then during pregnancy they all converge into the same state of, of a lactobacillus dominated community, and so it's very plausible that that coating is uh, covering the kid with the right kinds of microbes to educate the immune system later on, and uh, potentially to ward off infectious disease um, uh, right after birth as well as more generally uh, reducing the risks of a lot of those autoimmune um, or other, uh, or other uh, diseases that are linked to the immune system and to the microbiome. Incredibly fascinating. And, and as a pediatric eye specialist, the first thing we do to a child within the first few hours of their birth, or almost immediately birth, is we put antibiotics in the eye. That's right. Immediately. <laughs> That, that's right, and that, uh, we weren't able to uh, we weren't able to opt out of that with our kid either. And uh, the the interesting thing is, um, so so on, on on the one hand, you're reducing the risk of, uh, of of transmission of particular bacterial STIs that can that, that can cause um, it can cause complications. But on the other hand, uh, you are probably modifying the microbiomes of the kids in ways that we're just beginning to un- to understand. And so, so for example, Marty Blazer uh, at NYU has uh, done uh, some really elegant work showing both experimentally in mice and then epidemiologically in humans that if you get antibiotics uh, orally rather than the eye drops, but if you get if you get oral antibiotics in the first few months of life, you're much more likely to be obese later on. Whereas that's not true if you're first exposed to them later. So, I mean, th- these are environmental impacts that, that we don't even think about for the most part. You know, your child gets an ear infection. What do you do? Do you give them antibiotics or not? And now there's this long-term consequence that has never been on the radar screen before. Yeah, that's exactly right. And what's, what, what's especially worrying is, is um, repeated antibiotic use, and uh, <clears throat> which you can think of being like uh, repeated degradation of the environment. So, so the question is really, are we engineering a kind of silent spring for our microbes, where it's only, it's only a long way down the track that you understand the importance of what you've lost from the microbial ecosystem? How far away are we from people going to see their internal medicine doctor and just the way we get now a, a blood test, that we're going to have a microbiome test? 
Uh, well, well, again, that's a great question, and it depends a lot on what you mean by a microbiome test. So there are projects like American Gut where right now you can find out about your own microbes, but it's not, it's not yet uh, feasible to use that as a diagnostic test just because we don't know enough about the kinds of microbes that are involved in different conditions. And so that, that's, that's in large part the reason I moved to a medical school. If we can start putting together that map of people who have uh, different clinical conditions and the kinds of microbes that, uh, that, that lead them to go to different places on that microbial map, uh, we can tell you a lot more from uh, from your sample about what's likely to happen to you, what's happened already, and uh, potentially what you should do about it. So, um, so, so being being able to do that in the near future, I think is going to be very exciting for for a couple of reasons. So, one one is for figuring out drug responses in advance, and how you metabolize a wide range of drugs has now been linked to the microbes that you have. Well, uh, I mean, which makes sense. You're, you're ingesting most of these medications. Absolutely, and how you metabolize them can be completely different depending on which microbial genes and which metabolic pathways you have. And, uh, and, and so, so many of those are completely external to your own genome. So you just, um, so you just can't predict from the host alone what's going to happen. Uh, it's kind of, kind, of like, uh, kind of like the AIMS test for, uh, for carcinogens, right? Where until, um, until they started adding, adding in homogenate from the rat liver and all the liver enzymes, um, it was very hard to understand what was going to be genotoxic and what was, going to, uh, what was going to cause high levels of mutations. And adding the microbiome into that is likely to be critical. So, so I, I'm thinking about the amount of money you're going to need for research because uh-huh. you have to look at every disease, uh-huh. literally, and, and sort of start over and say, wait, let's look at this other issue yep. before you can make some of these other conclusions that we've already jumped to as, as a medical science. Let's go back to basics here and we have to, every disease, I mean, every disease, <laughs> Virtually, yeah, I, I think, I'll add virtually. I, I think, yeah, you might you might be right. I mean, I've been I've been trying to come up with examples of, of diseases that are definitely not linked to the microbiome. So, so for example, uh, I, I thought I was pretty safe in saying that Down syndrome was not a microbiome linked disease, but then investigators have had connections to where the oral microbiome shifts with Down syndrome, and it's possible that some of the uh, downstream complications are due to microbial changes in the mouth or in the gut. So, so I think you're right. It's very it's very hard to find a disease that's not linked to the microbiome. And in mouse models, not yet in humans, but in mouse models, even things like depression and autism and uh, multiple sclerosis have been linked to microbial involvement. So even diseases you'd think were very unlikely on the face of it, uh, there may be microbial involvement that we just don't know about. So, well, you know, and I'm also thinking about some diseases, for example, uh, you know, uh, myopia. That's what I deal with in uh-huh. nearsightedness. It's greater in the Asian population. Uh, and it's not clear that when uh, those folks move to another environment that some of these diseases change. Well, their microbiome changes, but their genes don't. Right. And so is, has, has things that we've assumed have been genetic or really microbiome oriented. Right. Well, myopia is a fascinating one because you're, you're talking about an overgrowth of a, of a healthy eye, and uh, it's entirely possible that some of that, uh, that signaling is mediated by microbes, although the other things that have been fingered as, as being involved um, include things like electric lighting and being able to, uh, just being exposed to a lot more, uh, a lot more light, um, which is also going to disrupt your uh, microbiome in various ways. Yes, uh, but the, and there's some evidence that going outside and being exposed to light actually decreases myopia in some of the newer studies actually from Australia. Correct. So, so you and I have to talk about this afterwards. We'll do for, for a research standpoint. Speaking of which, where do you want to go next? I mean, I, in your in your um, TED talk, you had this great smartphone, maybe uh-huh. smart toilet. Uh-huh, yeah. um, where do you want to go next with the research that you that you have? Where, where are the the next steps for you? Because what we've just talked about is an explosion of ideas, and science is very hard to do that. You have yeah. to sort of focus. Where next? 
You, you sound exactly like my Waini tenure committee. Uh, uh, um, yeah, I, I, exactly. So, um, so, so, so the focus, the focus in my research is much more on, on the technology development that we then apply to a whole lot of different application areas. And uh, the, the point you made before about funding, um, the, that it's just impossible to raise funds to essentially reevaluate every single disease in terms of the microbiome. That, that's exactly true. So uh, what, what you have to figure out is how can, you, um, how can you add a microbiome component to existing cohorts that have been very well set up, very well characterized, and uh, the, that, uh, that are already uh, allowing us to see the rest of the picture that we could add a microbial dimension to. Um, additionally, we need to figure out how to make a lot of the stuff uh, a thousand times or a million times cheaper. And uh, that, that might sound implausible, but, uh, but over the last decade, DNA sequencing got about a million times cheaper, and that's really what, uh, what, what enables the stuff we can do now. So uh, what will enable the stuff that we can do in 10 years? Like, for example, that dream of a smart toilet where every time you flush, maybe you're going to get a microbial readout immediately. It's going to deliver it to your smartphone. If it's alarming enough, maybe it delivers it to your, um, to, to your doctor or uh, gets into your EMR in some way, um, ideally in some way that's actually interpretable because the last thing you want is uh, during a 50-minute during a clinic visit to try to figure out what's going on with a thousand, uh, a thousand microbial species and yeah. microbial genes. <laughs> what, what you need is some animation like the kinds of things that I did in the TED Talk where you can tell people, are you, get, are you getting healthier or unhealthier? Can you tell people what's, what should you do specifically step-by-step step, to get from the unhealthy region to the healthy region? Or if you're healthy already, uh, just what should you do to stay on course? And so, so that's exactly what we're trying to develop. I now. love it. And, and in the last couple of minutes that we have left, um, some tips. So let's be practical if it's possible to do so. Uh, are there supplements? Are there changes that, that in general people can make that for the most part public health-wise help from omega fatty acids to other from vitamins to, to just the food they eat or what they do? Sure. Well, well, the evidence-based recommendations are, uh, again, mostly going to be evidence that was available to your grandma already, uh, knowing nothing about the microbiomes, right? So, um, so, so for example... Uh, so, so, for example, avoiding fries and other things that have a combination of fats and, um, and, and carbohydrates, uh, th- those are especially deleterious. Um, eating, eating the rainbow, so especially a wide range of brightly colored fruits and vegetables of different colors, that, ex- that exposes you to all these things like anthocyanins, lycopenoids, carotenoids, and other, uh, other, other compounds that are good from a microbial perspective as well as a host perspective. And then, um, and, and then fermented foods tend to, tend to be high in microbes that are able to produce butyrate in the gut. Um, so, so both fermented foods like yogurt and then fermentable fibers like, uh, like, like inulin, um, which then, uh, which then feed the, uh, the butyrate producers in the gut, which then maintain the health of your intestinal cells. So, um, so those are just a few things. Um, there's a lot more evidence on this coming out in the next, in the next few years. But what we know at the moment is mostly, uh, coming up with better mechanisms for things that are common sense. But what I think is going to happen over the next five to 10 years is we'll start getting into the really counterintuitive findings that you couldn't have just figured out on your own. Those are the most fun. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for spending some time with us today, and, and more importantly, for the work that you're doing. Well, thanks so much for the invitation. Uh, it's, um, it's really exciting. We're going to have to bring you back to yeah. This. We're going to have to bring you back to catch up. Right? <laughs> oh, sure, absolutely. I should tell you what's on your skin next time around. Yeah. Oh God, I don't even want to know. I don't think <laughs> I've been talking with uh, Dr. Rob Knight, a professor here at the University of California, San Diego, in pediatrics, computer science, and engineering. And I think if I was going to summarize what we just heard, it's that the revolution starts here. 
What Dr. Knight is doing is going to revolutionize the way we think about our bodies and the way we think about medicine and we think about the approach to the treatment or the prevention of disease. We are blessed that someone is out there thinking like this, and we are, we are hoping that he gets funded to do all the work that he needs to do one way or another. Stay here because on Health Matters, we're going to bring Dr. Knight back one day and we're going to find out more. Remember, knowledge is power. I'm Dr. David Granite, and we look forward to seeing you again next time right here on Health Matters. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.